Let's start this episode with a question. What do dinosaurs and space travel have in common? Well, in Hot Springs this summer, visitors could learn about both in one place, the Mid-America Science Museum. Set on a big campus surrounded by nature, we visit Mid-America on this back-to-school episode of Hot Springs This Week. Hot Springs This Week, a look at things to do and people to meet in Hot Springs, America's first resort. Hello and welcome. I'm Neil Gladner and I appreciate your listening. If you're new to our podcast, a special welcome. Every week we talk to someone who helps make Hot Springs a pretty special place to visit. So as of last week, we have listeners in 26 states now and two foreign countries, Great Britain and Japan. I appreciate your comments and your reviews, even guest suggestions for future podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at HS This Week. Coming up, we'll review some end-of-summer events to enjoy here in Hot Springs and get a preview of the annual Lake Trash Bash. But first, let's talk science. Science is a part of our everyday lives. Wonderful surprises right before your very eyes. A very popular place for visitors is the Mid-America Science Museum. It's not your typical urban-based museum. Instead, it's spread over acres, a beautiful campus out in the woods in a very natural setting. So let me introduce you to the executive director, Diane LaFollette. I think I saw a piece somewhere just a few weeks ago that you're about to celebrate the 40th anniversary of this museum. That That's amazing when you think about museums and science. And, and when you look at that, what jumps to your mind about progress at the Mid-America Science Museum over 40 years? Well, actually, what jumps to my mind is the innovation 40 years ago to have this museum in Arkansas in this place at that time. Because museums like what we have now were very, very few. There were a handful of them back in the 70s and the 60s uh, that were investigating hands-on education rather than just walk by, read a panel, look at the diorama. This is all about getting you involved with education and in that personal connection to learning, which is so important. So when I look back on the 40 years, I think, wow, someone had a vision. Someone had an incredible vision. It was more than one person, obviously. But to empower the people of Arkansas with this kind of education was really, it was on the forefront of what we call informal learning, which is everything outside of school. So for you and your staff now, do you all see yourselves as docents, museum keepers, or do you see yourself as teachers? Um, We call ourselves educators. So um, we see ourselves as educators. Uh, teachers, I think, is a, it's a, that's a profession that is highly respected or should be, and they teach in the formal uh, classroom. Museums are more about learning than they are about teaching. So our focus is more on the experience as people um, go through the museum and how they personally, personally connect with one thing or another and what, where their interest drives them. Uh, so it's a much freer, we call it free choice learning, informal learning, uh, those kinds of things. And, uh, and we also call it inquiry-based learning, which means instead of telling you what you need to know, 
like you often get in the classroom because they have so much to learn. We let you um, guide yourselves by asking you questions or you asking questions like, what happens if I do this to this exhibit? What happens if I try and change it this way? And it's experimenting with ideas and just taking the, the time to learn and explore without feeling pressure or intimidation or anything like that. Is it fair for me to say that the museum is aimed at young people but lots of moms and dads have some aha moments when they're here. Oh, I would I would say young people of all ages. You know, young is a state of mind, I think, and we'll, we're always learning. Uh, no matter if you're zero or 90, you know, you're always learning still. And uh, we'd like to provide that opportunity for you to always educate yourself. But um, what I find really remarkable here at MidAmerica is the family learning aspect which is so important, uh, especially to the younger generation, because if they are supported by their parents and their grandparents and what they're learning, they're gonna do better in school, but they're also gonna hang on to those concepts a lot longer, being supported in the family and uh, in, the, in the home and with the activities that they do every day. So if you, they come together to the museum, they experience something together, everybody's gonna have a different perspective, and if they share that, then, then the, the educational experience is just that much richer. So let's put a couple things in perspective with numbers. Okay. I don't really like to do numbers, but you kind of have to, to do numbers. So let's talk first about visitors. I, I don't know how you classify that. Is it by, by month, by year? How many people come to Mid-America? We look at it annually usually because it, it oscillates pretty wildly throughout the year. So annually we get about 110,000 people per year, which when you figure Hot Springs is only 33,000, 35,000 people, we do pretty well. We draw from all over the place, uh, from Texas, from Louisiana, from Missouri. Uh, we get people from New York, you know, in California. But our, our focus on the educational experiences we provide is in this area, is in this part of Arkansas, because that's our audience. Those, those are the locals that we want to impact the most. And uh, so we focus on them, but we certainly impact a wider range than that. So during the school year, a pretty popular field trip place. It's not uncommon to see a bunch of big yellow buses out in your parking lot. That's right. That's right. So we definitely want to attract school groups here So because that, that's our wheelhouse is getting those kids while they're in, a, in the classroom to come out here and either reinforce what they're learning in the classroom or introduce a new concept that they'll be touching on later in the classroom as well. So we work with the teachers uh, in the seven school districts in this area and we talk about what is it they're working on, what are the kinds of things that they need to do, what's difficult for them to do in the classroom. Like some of the smaller school districts, um, we do the dissections for them for some of their human body classes. So uh, it, that's an expensive class. It has a lot of equipment. There's a lot of knowledge. If you're gonna put a scalpel in a kid's hand, you need to teach them how to use it. And, a lot, and it's just easier for them to come out here, do that, and then enjoy the day. So we do things like that. and. Um, so we just try to work very closely with the, with the school districts to do that. What's the breakdown between static displays, things that we might see on a regular basis here at Mid-America, and the things that, that are here for a series, several months, but then something else replaces it? Well, right now, most everything here is permanent. So um, when we did the renovation in 2015, we did all new exhibits around the museum and those are all permanent so those are here um, we are working on a new addition to the museum a gallery addition which we had a vote you know last fall for 
and uh, got that with a 66% of the votes. So that was great. We were happy about that. But um, that gallery is going to allow us to put in temporary exhibits. So when we renovated, um, we took away that op that opportunity. We changed the floor enough so that we couldn't put in a, a traveling exhibit anywhere in the building as it exists. So adding this new gallery will give us that opportunity to put in new exhibits into the into the area. Now, what's really cool about this is we can touch on topics that our permanent exhibits don't touch on. We can have exhibits here in the state that no other museum in the state can have because of the size of the gallery. And we can um, have lots of science-based exhibits that most museums won't have as well. So it'll be an opportunity for statewide that isn't always, isn't anywhere else in the state. Doesn't Mid-America also have an association with, or I don't know how you characterize what you do with the Smithsonian? Yeah, it's an affiliation. So we're a Smithsonian affiliate. And uh, so we're a part of this smaller group of uh, museums around the country where we can either get parts of their collections. And you know, the Smithsonian isn't just one museum. It's a collection of museums, right? So they have so much available to us that's not, it's usually in their archives or in their collections so that we could we can kind of pick and choose what we want from that. Every now and then they put together a touring exhibit, a traveling exhibit, and we can get that as well. Uh, we participate in professional development with them, so we, go, we can go out to D.C. and send some staff out there to work with their professionals. So it's a great opportunity for this museum to keep a real professional level of, of um, educational experiences. So when I was talking about exhibits before, I probably didn't use the right museum terminology. And I say that because I think about the different programs that come through, like you have one this summer on space travel. And, and so, so break down the difference between exhibits and programs and, and how you curate the things you want to bring to the museum. Okay, yeah, that's a different question <laughs> completely. So yeah, exhibits are the, the furniture that are that's around the museum and and when you come in you'll see all of those things and they don't change as often but the programs change all the time uh, we have some staples that we always have um, like Tinkerfest we have that um, we used to have it in the spring we're having it in the fall this year and that's a collection of makers that bring their craft into the museum all stem based and what it is is an opportunity for families to come and experiment with lots of different kinds of things that professionals do out in the world. So um, we have those. We also bring in some different events once a year and, and maybe only do it once and never do it again just because of what's going on around in the world. So for example, we did this summer we're doing a lot with the Apollo 11 moon landing because this is the 50th anniversary of that. We won't do that next year, clearly, but it's an opportunity to talk about space, space exploration, going to Mars maybe in 2024 and talk about all those kinds of things. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars, and let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. So to answer your question, how do we decide? Um, a lot of it has to do with our mission and what it is we're trying to provide to the community. So like an opportunity to engage in STEM education with the family, and with the school, so that's Tinkerfest for sure. And then a lot of it happens has to do with what's going on in, in society at the time. So we get together once a week and we talk about the, the calendar, we call it, and look at, uh, a year or two out in advance and see what we want to do. So we, we do a lot of pre-planning, and um, there's a lot of steps that go into putting something together 
Uh, we're getting really good at it, I have to say, because we've done it a lot. But we, we just decide that way. Something coming up in another week is a summer science mash. That's fairly new, and, and that's a way to say goodbye to summer by making a big mess. So uh, this will be our third year for that. So it's a fairly new event, and it was so popular that first year we are bringing it back. Um, last year we dropped a big rubber band ball on a car, <laughs> and that was a lot of fun. This is sponsored by the Alliance Rubber Company, so you can see why we had a rubber band ball. Um, but it was nearly 300 pounds. And we dropped it on a car, and it's amazing how much damage a rubber band ball can do. <laughs> well, but it was 300 pounds of rubber band, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't lift that lightly, that's for sure, literally. Uh, we're gonna, we have the same ball. By dropping it on a car, it didn't damage the ball at all. So we're taking the same ball. We've added a few more rubber bands to it, and we're going to do it again this summer. Only we're going to drop it on a toaster, a freezer, and a car. So I remember when... Late night host David Letterman used to drop things off the top of his building in downtown New York. Was that the inspiration for this by any chance? Well, no, because most of the people here are too young to remember that, <laughs> except for me. It started off with, we saw a video on YouTube, and someone was rolling a rubber band ball down a hill into a car. And we didn't have a good hill, so what we did is we got a crane and we dropped the rubber band ball on the car, which was probably a lot safer than rolling it. Uh, you could control it better. But um, it, was, it was really fun, and, and it got um, shared. The idea, the, the um, video on Facebook got shared by a, by a national organization and got some recognition that way. And it was just a lot of fun. People loved it. They came out and watched it. And, so we're growing that. We're going to have a Gallagher-style show before that, smashing watermelons and things. And then we're going to do uh, the rubber band ball drop. And, and so, so the element to that is the fun, obviously. But, but when you're having a good time, you're going to remember it. And hopefully tied into that is the science behind what you saw. And you'll remember that, too. So we found that when you learn, your emotional state is attached to that learning. So if you're joyful when you're learning something, you're going to remember it in a very good way. Let me come back to Tinkerfest for a moment. Put that in perspective. Help me understand what kinds of tinkering we'll be seeing here at Mid-America. Well, uh, we're working on uh, getting different people here. So um, one of the things, of course, we'll have, um, uh, we get the um, Faye Jones School of Architecture come down, and they, they show people what it takes to be an architect, and they have all kinds of activities they can do that, that kind of de demonstrate the geometry and all the science behind architecture. Uh, we've had um, the EAST program come down, and they demonstrate VR, so they have these ocular rift type um, goggles that you can wear, you can see VR, you know, so kids can see what's going on with that. Um, we've, we've even That's gone to virtual reality. Yeah, yeah, virtual. Yeah, sorry. Um, and then we've had uh, less high tech things happen. So like we have people make things from well, we've had rubber band uh, airplanes, you know, we I don't know if you remember that where you wind up your airplanes and you fly them off. So all the way from real simple old school things to high tech things. And so it's just a mishmash, a mashup, I guess I should say of lots of different things that are science-based, that are fun, and it's just like a big carnival. So to the point about learning is better when you enjoy the learning. So my memory is going to be hazy on this, but help me 
because I was at a convention where someone from Mid-America, maybe in Rotary or somewhere else, somewhere from Mid-America, I think, came out and gave a demonstration about centrifugal force and the difference between that. But I think that individual's been on national television because he does such a good job, but you have to help me remember who that is. Okay, so that's two different museums. So uh, Museum of Discovery in Little Rock had Kevin Delaney on Jimmy Fallon. And I came from that museum, so, you know, I'm super familiar with them. Yeah. So, um, but uh, Kevin is, uh, I think, was he on like four or five times? I don't remember, but he was really awesome. He was really good. Um, but what you saw at Rotary was one of our guys come up and, and do something kind of similar to that. And we had a gentleman sit down and with a bowling ball. Do you remember that? <laughs> and uh, the whole de- degradation of energy and the pendulum. And so... He held a bowling ball next to his face, and he let go of it. And if he didn't move, when it swung back to him, it wouldn't hit him in the face. So you have to trust. You have to trust science. A dot isn't the best way to try to sum up how electrons come and go. Mm-hmm. They are the states of a matter field that follows an equation that Dirac wrote. You mentioned STEM before. Science, technology, Engineering and math, isn't that what STEM stands for? So there's been a lot of talk about STEM learning. Well, it's super easy. That's our mission. It states in our mission that we uh, promote the sciences, a public understanding of the sciences uh, for all ages. So um, that's everything that we do. So um, it's so important. And this was in our mission from, from 40 years ago. So again, back to that visionary, those visionary leaders that started the museum. Uh, knowing that science and technology were very important. And uh, there were not all that long ago, there's all these news articles that came out that the United States is falling behind in science education and our kids aren't scoring well and we aren't graduating scientists and those kinds of things. And so museums play a really important part with formal education to get kids interested in science. We don't expect every child that walks in the building or walks into a classroom to become a scientist, that would be silly. <laughs> you don't want everybody to be a scientist, but those that have the inclination, the aptitude, we want them to be supported in their decision and in their pursuit of the sciences because it's, it's, it's our way to the future, for sure. I saw a piece on 60 Minutes not too long ago about STEM and coding and things of that nature that talks specifically about the need to get especially females interested early because if you don't capture their imagination early somehow the ability to get into that field gets past them would, would you agree with that yeah I would agree with that and that's that is historical that is decades uh, old of a you know it's a problem that's persisted that long some of it has to do with the way um, science the harder sciences are taught um, women and men learn differently uh, women are more about relationships more men are more about how how things work, right? And so when you're teaching physics or chemistry straight from the how things work perspective, you're missing out on the other perspective of how things work together. You know, if I do this to something, what will it do to something else over here? So um, we've we found that, not me, but the research out there says that we need to learn how to teach science to both genders, you know, and incorporate both sides of that because both sides are very important. So that's a piece of it. Uh, the other piece of it is just, you know, the historical opportunity for women to work in the workplace. And, and I think that's changing. It's slow, but it is changing for, to support women in, in the sciences. So, so you can say the way people learn the difference between males and females, but does that now enter into 
how you go about coming up with programs here at Mid-America? Yeah, um, it does. Um, one of the things that we're doing right now is we do a girls in STEM program. We do it once a month right now. Uh, we're working on growing that into more of a conference. So we have a girls in STEM conference here where we have inspirational speakers that are women, that are professional scientists that come in. They, they inspire girls and they have activities. And uh, we've been doing girls in STEM for a few years. And so we have a nice roster of very inspirational professional women that would love to get more girls into the pipeline. So um, that's very important to segregate them off because when you sometimes when you put boys and girls in the same classroom, you can't teach to both sides at one time. So sometimes that works. Um, but then, you know, we don't want to forget the boys either. So we, we want to have opportunities for boys too. When we do a classroom or a program with both genders, of course, you try to, you try to incorporate both sides of that, the relationship side and the how fast does this go side. <laughs> So when you, when you see those sessions, like the girls in STEM, obviously, you mentioned before, you don't expect everybody who goes through it to come away and say, oh, I want to be a scientist. But do you, do you see aha moments? Do you see discovery going on right in front of your eyes when you, when you have those programs? You do. And again, it doesn't mean they're going to be a scientist, but if they understand something, and you can see that, you can see that by the way they ask the questions, or by the way they jump up and they want to get involved in things, and rather than sit back, the body language is completely different, clearly. And there's nothing better. I think that's the juice that keeps teachers teaching and us doing what we do, is, is seeing that connection. So that's very rewarding for sure. But um, yeah, and, and again, we don't expect everybody to be a scientist, but some understanding of the process of science can serve you in many ways, but also just if you're when you vote on issues, when you uh, make decisions in your adult life, you know to have that background of knowledge helps you as you grow and, and move through your adult life. So, I want to go back. You mentioned the 50th anniversary of Apollo, so you have all these space programs that have occurred this summer. But when you walk into the museum, you see dinosaurs. So you talk about different things at the same time. Is there something scientific about dinosaurs? How did you end up with dinosaurs here? Well, who doesn't love dinosaurs, right? <laughs> I mean, nothing good like a dinosaur. Uh, we found that historically, we have attendance records all the way back to 1979. And every time we had a dinosaur exhibit, a temporary traveling exhibit, our attendance shot up about 20% every summer. So clearly there, there's an attraction there, but the folklore out there with other museums as well is that dinosaurs are always attractive. And there's an, a particular age range of children, usually the younger preschool to first grade, where they're so attracted to dinosaurs. And I, I haven't really dived into that science, but there's something about the mythical quality of dinosaurs, even though they're real, it, it's a great introduction into um, into sciences for these young children. They can say those big names, those long names. They can say them better than any adult, <laughs> and and they know what each of those sciences, those uh, dinosaurs' names are. They can identify them, and it's just a great entree. And and since we've had this in here, we've had with our dinosaur walk in the back of the museum, um, we've had a a 15% increase in attendance in that first year, partial year that we had it. So it's just it's just an attraction, you know, it's just, and everybody loves them. There's a big old dinosaur right at the front door. What is that? That's a, well, there's two of them. There's a T-Rex and a Triceratops, but the T-Rex is the one that's like got his mouth out open and snarling at you as you, as you're walking down the bridge. <laughs> and, and a great place 
to take a picture because when I was coming in to see you, there was a family having their picture made with that dinosaur right there and another one waiting to take their picture with the dinosaur. Are those, how, how close are they in scale to real life or that, are those actual scales? No, they're not. They're not actual size. They're scaled, and some of them are different. You know, there's one back there that is blown up quite a bit, like four times. It's not. It's four times as big as it should be. It's a tiny dinosaur. But uh, the closest one are the two Brachiosauruses that are up at the top. We used to call them Brontosauruses or Apatosauruses. They've changed their name over the years. They're close, but they're still not as big. Um, the T-Rex, if we had a real T-Rex, he'd be, he'd be all over the front yard. <laughs> we couldn't fit him into our front yard. He'd be so big. But, um, yeah, to have him that large would be really difficult. Now, if you want to see them the right scale, go to Chicago. Go to New York at uh, American Museum of Natural History. They have full-size dinosaur skeletons. And so you also talked about the new building you're about to embark on for the traveling exhibits that you'll bring in. So are you already starting to curate what's going to be in those or choose and, and kind of give us a peek behind the curtain? What's going on there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're looking now. We already, <clears throat> we've had a couple of meetings already to look to see what's available. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what um, we're looking at is uh, there's a really cool one that we're looking at called Science fiction science future and it talks all about uh, what we can anticipate in the next 20 30 years in science development now if, if you know if you're a science fiction fan from way back in the 50s a lot of the things that was science fiction back then is actually science fact now we have wristwatches that have a computer you know like like you have and uh, the Apple watch and and that's the old Dick Tracy watch if you remember um, you know, and, and the rockets that went to m the moon and stuff, that was just fiction, you know, a few decades ago. And it's all come true. Uh, there's some argument as to which is really driving which, the fiction driving the science or the science driving the fiction, you know, it's hard to say. But we're looking at that one. It has, uh, it has some robotics in it. It has some AI, which is artificial intelligence. It has some AR, which is augmented reality in it. And um, uh, so we're looking at that one. That one will be really cool. We're looking at one about space um, that talks about, um, let's see what's in that one, I'm trying to remember. Um, it has about space exploration, so it has a lot of the different vehicles that were used to, to go up to the moon and to orbit the Earth, and then the Voyager that went out, it's, I think it's still traveling outside the solar system now, um, the probe. Um, so we're looking at those. Um, there's one called Spiders that our education <laughs> director really loves, and it has real spiders in it. And it has uh, lots of giant webs around it. It talks about um, spiders and their environment and why are they looking the way they do, why are people afraid of them. Very cool. Um, there's one that's about, um, there, there was a uh, survival, the worst case scenario survival game. Do you, I don't know if you remember that. I've seen books about survival that, that give you tips what to do if you're, a bear is chasing you, things of that nature? Yeah, that, it's like that, and there's also a board game like that. So now there's an exhibit about that. So it's all about fear and what, what do you do in fearful situations. So I think that would be a lot of fun as well. So when you get these traveling exhibits, traditionally how long can you keep them? 
And two-part question, how far out do you have to arrange for them? So we keep them usually for about three months. So what our plan is to have a, a big traveling exhibit every summer because that's when we have the most visitors and we make the biggest impact because uh, we also write educational programs to go around them. Um, and then, you know, looking out a year from now is probably, we probably could, could have looked two years ago before so if we start looking now we're looking at the exhibits that we have some of them aren't available next summer so we're queuing them up for the following summer so you can look out as far as you want to three four or five years with the new ones when they're brand new and they first hit the market um, sometimes they're booked up for several several years ahead of time so so do you actually compete with other museums to get those traveling exhibits we could. The real desirable ones, like the science fiction, science future one, that's very desirable and it's fairly new. So um, if we were interested in it for summer and somebody else was interested in it for the same time period, we'd have to like be the first on the, you know, to write up the contract so we could get it. So how many, how many museums around the country, roughly, I'm not, I'm not trying to pin you down to a specific number, but I mean, how many museums around the United States do you have to compete with for these things? Oh, well, uh, that's hard to say because um, we have a, a national organization called the Association of Science and Technology Centers, and there's about 300 member, members in that group, 350 members. Um, some of those are European, you know, some of them are Canadian, some of them are in Mexico and different places. Uh, so I would say roughly around 300, but they're all different sizes. So our exhibits uh, that we're looking for are 5,000 square feet. There are exhibits out there that are 10,000, 20,000 square feet, so we would definitely not look at those. Those would go into San Francisco or Chicago or Portland, Oregon, and the larger museums for sure. Um, but for our size, actually, um, we probably have more competition than we would for the larger exhibits because there's more museums our size than there are the really big ones. Are there particular kinds of exhibits that are more appropriate for Arkansas than others just because of a, a certain kind of an interest level here? Yeah, you definitely. So when you're looking for traveling exhibits, it has to check a lot of boxes, right? So one of them is how, how big is it? When's it available? What's the educational content? And that's where we look at our community and see if it's something that we think um, is needed here in the community or something that people would be interested in here in the community. Um, that's where we would do a, a little focus group to find out what kinds of things people would like to see. So if, let's say, we tested the worst case scenario exhibit and they, nobody was interested in it, we'd say, well, let's just not get that. You know, maybe they wouldn't be interested in having something like that. Or maybe the spider exhibit. I mean, that's a definitely, you know, that's a definite love or hate exhibit. Some people love it. Some people really not like to see that one at all. So, you know, we, we got to weigh all of those together. So not every exhibit we would want to have here, um, you know, for sure. I remember probably 10 years ago or so there was an exhibit here called The Body. And all over the country it was a controversial exhibit because it, it really was showing the entire body. Do museums these days, are they more conscious, more fearful of putting on things that are controversial, or do you take the other side? It's educational. That's part of our mission. Uh, I think it uh, depends on the museum themselves. Uh, the Bodies exhibit, when they first came out, and that was quite a while ago, was highly controversial because it used real human bodies, uh, uh, people that had passed away and donated their bodies to science. And, um, you know, it's just really, it's kind of 
creepy to look at when you see these human bodies. You go, that could be me, you know, or that's what's inside of me, you know, and it's just so personal. Um, I know the stance, I wasn't here when they had it here, and I know the stance they were taking was that the educational value of it is so high compared to the possible uh, controversial side of it that they went ahead and elected to have it. I think a lot of museums see it that way now. And these exhibits have been around for a while, so I don't hear the controversy as much as I did at the very beginning. Um, but yeah, there's there's some controversial topics. You know, um, environmental issues are kind of controversial still. Um, uh, there was one where there was a, a murder mystery exhibit that caused some controversy because they're they're saying let's not promote violence. You know, and so you you really do have to be sensitive to maybe that hidden message that you may not pick up on as a museum professional, but that the public might go, well, wait a minute, I don't think I want my children to see this. So it's totally understandable. So does a diversified board of directors help with something like that? Absolutely. Yeah, we definitely let the board see. So uh, we're, we have this little task force to choose the next exhibit and there are board members on it and they're, they're vetting all the choices and then we'll take it to the board and say, what do you think? This looks good, this looks good, here's some choices that we have. And you definitely wanna get a lot of opinions on it because it's a yeah. big investment. And I imagine there are times where the exhibit sounds like, or the traveling program, whatever it is, sounds like such a great idea and then somebody who's on that task force will say something that nobody in the museum had thought of. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So um, I'm trying to think. I haven't come up on that in these last couple of meetings, but you know, everybody has a different point of view, you know, and you gotta you gotta see what that is and and let people think about different topics. So let's come back to some of the things that are you call them furniture, the the standing permanent uh, exhibits. What are the ones where you you see children smile the most? What are the ones that are the the, the real amazing ones for your visitors? I think the ones that, of the permanent ones, that really uh, capture the imagination is, a, first of all, a two-story water exhibit. That's where people come and they spend a lot of time. So we have this water exhibit that goes through a hole in the upper floor and goes all the way down to the lower floor. And it's this interaction between the two floors that gets people really engaged. And of course, kids love water. You know, they love to play with it. It's a, it's a, medium that changes all the time but it's you know it's just so much fun to experiment with so that captures a lot of attention and people spend a lot of time get very wet down there <laughs> which is great we love it the rain and terrain is really popular it's where we have this image projected onto a substrate of rubber and what it does is it shows topographic lines and different colors of of uh, elevation you know, so if you build a, it's hard, it's hard to describe. If you build a mountain out of this rubber, it will, it will show you the topographic lines of, of maybe how high of this mountain you're virtually building. Uh, but also it will shade it. So like at the bottom, it'll be green because that's where the trees can grow. The higher you go, it'll turn yellow and red because after a certain height, trees don't grow. There's a, there's a, a tree line. Uh, at the mountains in Colorado and stuff so and at the very top you'll get snow so it'll turn white so that's real engaging because it's so colorful and so pretty but the the lessons inside of that are really deep because kids may not understand about topography and geography and things like that so you can really talk about a lot of things like that and then finally one that I think is really set the museum apart in the country is our skywalk 
and that's the bridge that goes 180 feet out into the woods and 40 feet off the ground and has that rope bowl and the rope bridge and you can walk out there and be out amongst the trees and see the West Mountain from the end. And that's just, um, I've had a lot of museums call me and say, okay, how did you do that? What did it cost? How long did it take? How do we get one? You know, so uh, it's really unique here and um, we're very proud of that and people just love it. It's very peaceful and beautiful. It's not gonna be a loud space, although it gets loud because you get a lot of people out there, but um, it's really unique here. And then let's, let's wrap up by looking into the future, not only of just this museum, but I'm sure you go to seminars and conferences and you see what's coming. When you look at how rapidly technology is changing, I imagine you're planning now for things. That, what, what are you thinking about for five and ten years out? What will we see in museums way into the future that are just conceptual being discussed right now? Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I love it. That's a conversation we've started to have here, and I'm starting to hear in different uh, conferences. So that tinkering um, uh, tinker fest that I told you about, where we have all these different activities and uh, throughout the museum, and we have a tinkering studio where you can come in and you can work on lots of different projects and stuff. The concept of tinkering is, is uh, the idea is that you can go in there, you can discover, you can... Uh, experiment, you can try different things, you can fail and it's okay, and you can just mess around with things. It's kind of like your, your garage to go out there and really work. And that's something that has taken the country. I mean, it's all over the country. And once it started spreading across the United States, most museums do a version of that. And, and the maker spaces that are out there now are kind of an, uh, a connection to that as well. So like National Park College has one. Uh, ASMSA here in town has one and those are all very important and it's all good to get people using materials and tools and, and building and making things but what's the next step and that's what we're starting to ask what's next you know this is all great is getting people to think critically and to to plan and to build and all of those things but what's next and um, we're talking here at Mid-America about what's where where is science going so there was an interview of a, of a scientist um, on 60 Minutes, oops, sorry, on 60 Minutes not too long ago, where he was saying that uh, they're talking about artificial intelligence and how that is going to really change the world. And this gentleman said that uh, it will change the world as much as electricity changed the world. And so if you think about it, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean? What's going to happen? Uh, is it something that we need to pre be prepared for? I know there's a lot of fear out there about it. I, I think that there needs to be some concentration as to where are we really headed. We're not the scientists that make the science happen. We're the disseminators. We're the connection between the public and the scientists. So if we can find out where these scientists are going and what's the direction that we need to help the public go along with, then that's our goal there. So So looking at the Robotics is one thing. Robotics is al already here, you know, maybe not in the science fiction films, you know, like we see, but, but you know, it's your vacuum. It, it's in your car. It's, in, you know, it's everywhere. But, um, but it's the, that extra piece of artificial intelligence, I think, that that's where we'll start to see the connection between science and the public. Now, let's, let's go from artificial intelligence to emotion for just a moment. <laughs> So you've got the keys to the place. You can be here anytime you want. When you're here 
after hours and you walk the museum, what's the part of Mid-America that is your happy place? You know, I have to say the whole place. And I honestly, I do that. I don't know that you knew that I do that. I did not. <laughs> but I do. I love to walk through the museum when people are here and you talk to people and you engage them. And, and that, that is a wonderful thing because it's just so great to see people connect with these exhibits and the learning that they do. But after hours, you walk through and you kind of look at how beautiful this place is, you know, physically. Um, again, back to the visionaries that built this place, the, the architecture is 40 years old. It still stands. I met a, a, a man in, I went to a conference in Copenhagen a few months ago. It was an international museum conference, and I met a man who was a, with an exhibit firm in Germany, and he uh, had been in San Francisco, and he was driving across the country with his team, and they stopped here at Mid-America because they'd heard about it. And they said to me that they think Mid-America is one of the best science centers in the United States. It's the right size, the setting is beautiful, it has enough experiences of phenomena-based education, rather than you push this button, it tells you what to know, it, it lets you experiment with lots of different phenomena, scientific. You just walk through and, and appreciate that factor, that it's a, it's a place where people come to learn, it's a, but it's a beautiful place and it's very well put together. The, the trees, the stream, the, the two wings, you know, all the glass, and um, physically it's very beautiful, but it just, it's just a place of happiness. So I have to say the whole place, I, I'll walk down the bridge and, and just be happy. And so many, I've not been to a lot of science museums, but for the most part it seems they're in urban areas and this is anything but urban. As you mentioned, out with the trees and we're, we're out past National Park College for people who don't know where the Mid-America is. Isn't that really unique for science museums? It is. Now, there are a few, you know, that I know about, but you're right. A lot of them are urban and, and they're downtown or they're, you know, somewhere where there's a lot of concrete and stuff. And, um, you know, they may have an homage to some sort of natural environment, but we're in the middle of it. We're right next to the National Forest and we have 21 acres out here that is all natural. Um, where that's a blessing. Um, we're also, we haven't really capitalized on it. So the building of the dinosaurs was a, was a, an attempt at that, but we're also, you'll start to see a whole lot more environmental education exhibits and programming that, that we plan on doing because of where we are. And, and we're trying to go back to as many native plants as possible. You know, we'll have some cultivated plants, but teach people about pollen, pollinators and, and all those things. So yeah, the setting is very unique, I think, especially outside of a small town in a rural state. So last question, what's your dream exhibit? What's the thing that you just can't wait to have at Mid-America and don't even know if you can pull it off? Oh, you mean uh, any kind of exhibit? Yeah. Oh, there's so many. Um, as far as traveling, I don't know because I'm still learning what's out there. So I won't say that, say permanent. The next thing I want to do is I want to reinvent the cave. So is, I don't know if that's what you're looking for. Uh, we want to keep the cave idea, but we want to go more into the science and oh, well, the, the true uh, environment of a cave. Arkansas is one of the few uh, states that have the most karst formations. That's a cave formation. And we should represent it as it truly is. Right now, it's just a fun you know, run through. 
but um, I want to redo it. It'll still be a cave, but it'll be much more educational and much more real as far as what is a real cave, what happens, what's, how did it form, all those things. So that's one for sure that um, is refurbing something that we already have. But I think eventually um, I would like to, truly I'd like to have some more outdoor exhibits that talk a lot more about big scientific phenomena. So we're looking at doing some, some more outdoor exhibits. My thanks to Diane for her time. If you want more information about the museum, tickets, group rates, what exhibits there are, all at their website, midamericamuseum.org. And Midamerica Museum is all one word. Now, on to things to do as the summer draws to a close. This is what we'll call the use by section of the podcast. In a moment, Jennifer Bailey and I will cover things you can do here in Hot Springs until about the second week of September. So if you're listening past that date, the things we'll talk about are the things that will make you say, I wish I'd have known about that back then. So at the sound of the bell, if you're listening after September 15th, feel free to move to your next podcast on the list. Now our regular visit with my colleague from Sister Station 105.9 KLAZ, Jennifer Bailey. So Jennifer, this podcast is for the week of August the 19th, which means the kids are already back in school. Things start to slow down a little bit, but there's still plenty to do, and we're closing in on the Labor Day weekend. You heard earlier in this podcast about the Mid-America Science Museum. Well, the Summer Science Smash, Diane mentioned, is coming up Saturday, August 24th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Like she said, it's great fun. And it's messy. They'll be smashing a car and some other things as well. I saw the big rubber band she talked about. It's 300 pounds, but it's not as big as you would think. I guess rubber bands are heavier than we might think. Hmm. Uh, You can check out the Mid-America Science Museum Facebook page for more details. Well, if you're a music fan, August 29th through September 1st, both the Hot Springs Blues Festival and Jazz Fest will be happening. So you can enjoy them both. Both have been happening for years, and let me give you a couple of websites so you can plan your schedule if this sings to you. Cute. See what I did there? Yeah. 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 <laughs> for jazz, it's hsjazzsociety.org. For blues, it's spacityblues.org. And Spa City Blues is all one word. It's worth looking at the programs if you like jazz or blues or you just love music in general. The Spa City Blues Society flagship event is on Saturday, August 31st. Promoters say this year's festival is getting back to its roots. Admission for that is only 15 bucks for seven acts. Okay, we talked about this in the last podcast. The village people are coming to town. The village people are... Yes, <laughs> August 31st out at Magic Springs. You know, you need a park admission for the day, but whether you have a day pass or a season pass, the concerts are always free. So you might start practicing making your body into letters for when they do Y-M-C-A. Very nice. Why, thank you. I've been practicing. I can tell. (laughs) And looking way ahead, the 14th annual Hot Springs Motorcycle Rally is September 5th through 7th. If you live in Hot Springs, you know because you can hear the bikers in town. There's a bunch of them. Oh, yeah. Entertainment this year is on the 6th. It's 38 special. How awesome is that? And on the 7th, Jared Neiman. So whether you like rock or country, 
all covered. Tickets and information at the Hot Springs Rally. That's all one word. HotspringsRally.com. By the way, even if you're not a biker, pretty phenomenal people watching. Oh, absolutely. Fun group of people. Also on September 6th, like they do the first Friday of every month, Gallery Walk downtown. The gallery stay open late. You can stroll around. Many have adult beverages, snacks, things of that. You may just see a piece of art you can't live without. I love the Gallery Walk. And aren't they celebrating 30 years yeah, that was, of the Gallery yeah, Walk? Yeah, they just celebrated. And That's they had birthday amazing. cake and everything. That was while you were on holiday. Oh, oh well. And oh. Also, if you like live theater, check out the Hot Springs Bathhouse Theater. A variety of shows there from plays to concerts to tribute bands. And if you like magic, make yourself appear at the Maxwell Blade. He performs five nights a week at the historic Malco Theater. And finally, mark your calendar and get your costume ready. Because September 20th through 22nd, it's the fourth annual SpaCon Comic and Pop Culture Convention. You can find out the information on who's going to be there, all the fun stuff, and tickets at spa-con.org. We will have a future podcast on that among the stars, Barry Bostwick. Ooh, from Rocky Horror. He's coming. Heck yeah. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks. If you want more information on any of the things we mentioned, other items for an upcoming visit, the best website for that is hotsprings.org. When you go there across the top, the menu bar, you'll find restaurants and lodging, events, a calendar, all the information you need to plan and enjoy a trip here in Hot Springs. Again, that's at hotsprings.org. Whether you live here in Hot Springs or are planning a visit, for many, our lakes and rivers are a pretty big draw. Lakes Hamilton and Catherine are used not only for recreation, but for power generation operated by Entergy Hydro. So now time for our regular lake and river update with Kimberly Bogart. So with Kimberly Bogart from Entergy Hydro, Kimberly, let's start, as we always do, talk about what we can expect on the lakes and rivers in the next couple of weeks in terms of flow. So Labor Day is coming up on us, but up until then, you know, we've got a lot of hot weather going on. And so we are continuing the recreational releases for seven hours a day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Saturdays and Sundays. But during the week... People have been able to float during the week, but because it's hot, the times that we're going to be generating each day might change, but you can still typically expect the water to be flowing during the hottest part of the day. So if you want to float during the week, you can generally put in and expect your float around noon to three. So if you still are putting in between noon and two o'clock, you should be all right. But just a reminder, you want folks to make sure they time that in a way to get back to pick up their car by a certain time. Right. So while the water only takes two hours to get from Rimmel Dam to the Whitewater Park down in Malvern, which is where the takeout location is, um, it takes you basically at minimum about three hours to make the same float. So the water's not going to be flowing long enough for you to perhaps not get back to the to the put-in there at Rimmel Dam by 10, but do know that the gate does close by 10, so you are going to need to retrieve your vehicles before 10 o'clock at night. But, you know, you also want to be off the river before the dam stops generating because you might end up walking out instead of floating out. Or paddling a lot. Yeah, that's, that's true as well. But, you know, we've heard of reports of some people having to walk themselves out and carrying yourself and everything you took with you as you walk down a stream bed that's no longer a river. Is is an experience. And, of course, it's not in the next couple of weeks, but your biggest cleanup comes up in a few weeks. 
Right. So Energy is a partner in a group called the Trash Bash Council that's made up of independent citizens and different city and county organizations in Hot Spring County and Garland County here in Hot Springs, the city of Hot Springs. And we have two events each year, and the biggest one is coming up here on September 14th. It's called Trash Bash. And the event itself is the largest cleanup in the state of Arkansas, registered with Keep Arkansas Beautiful. It is, uh, it'll attract people from several surrounding counties, from Pulaski, Saline, Grant, Clark, Montgomery, all of those around us. It will attract about six to 700 volunteers. It is, it is a huge cleanup event um, that only runs about four hours. It runs from eight until noon, and all volunteers earn tickets based on how much trash that they pick up. And they take those tickets to Garvin Woodland Gardens. We give you a free barbecue lunch sponsored by Smokin' and Style. We um, have t-shirts, especially for the kids, but, you know, with the adult sizes, as long as they last, we'll give out free participation t-shirts. And then all of those tickets that you get where it's, it's issued out as one ticket per bag of trash that you collect goes into a raffle, and we'll raffle off $2,000 worth of gifts. So the, the grand prize we always say every year is a laptop, but nowadays I'm buying, you know, Kindle Fires and tablets and flat panel TVs. There's a lot of good stuff, along with fishing poles and tackle boxes and outdoor games, because we do want to encourage people to get out and enjoy the outdoors. And you were telling me before we actually started recording that most of the cleanup is not on the lake shore, but on the things that lead into the lake, because it's easier to collect that way. Right. You might find as you walk around town, you might see these little stickers on the manhole covers and different drains. It says drains directly to the lake. And that's really what happens. If a piece of trash enters into the enters into a drain there on, say, Central Avenue, it's going to end up in Lake Hamilton. And we want to try to prevent that before it gets there because it's certainly a lot easier to pick up roadsides and creeks and ditches on the way to the lake than to wait until it gets into the lake because nobody wants to see it, number one, on the roadside, streams and ditches. But we definitely don't want to see it floating around the lake or piled up in the backs of coves. That's what this is. So while the check stations are located around the shores of Lake Hamilton and Catherine that allow you to pick up by truck or vehicle or by boat, um, it really is more of an area cleanup. It does a huge amount in the area. And you can go to ArkansasTrashBash.org to find out where those check stations are and to find out some more information on that. Okay, say the website one more time, and that's also, I presume, how you would sign up to be a part of this? Actually, you don't have to sign up online. You just show up at the check stations uh, between uh, right around 8 a.m. You'll clean up till noon. But you can go to ArkansasTrashBash.org. And then finally, as we get ready for the Labor Day weekend, which is still a little bit out from the time we're recording this podcast, I imagine as busy as the lakes are that weekend, we can expect the Sheriff's Patrol and uh, the Coast Guard Auxiliary and all of that to be out there with that eye toward safety. Definitely. You'll see that. And, and obviously, you know, we, we hope that everybody that's out boating on the lakes has a great time. But also keep in mind that there are rules of the road out there. There are some no-wake areas. There's a lot of courtesy that needs to be taken into effect when you're out there on the lakes because everybody, you know, is out there to have a good time. That's Kimberly Bogart from Entergy Hydro. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you. My thanks to Kimberly, to Jennifer, and especially Diane LaFollette from the Mid-America Science Museum. Again, their website address, midamericamuseum.org. And also... Thanks to you for listening, for sharing, commenting, reviewing, and even making suggestions. Again, reach us on Twitter at HS This Week. By the way, if you're new to the podcast, take a look at some of the previous podcasts and meet some other people. Scott McClard of McClard's Barbecue, 91 years in business there. Louis Sella, he is the fourth Sella to operate Oaklawn Park, our thoroughbred racetrack and now casino here in Hot Springs. 
baseball historian Mike Dugan, Bill Barnes from Mountain Harbor Resort, Robert Raines from the Gangster Museum. Lots of things to do in Hot Springs and lots of interesting people to hear from. So thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next podcast. Until then, this is a presentation of KZNG News Talk Radio right here in America's First Resort.